Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For those who don't know me, my name's Chad and I have the joy of being a part of the leadership or ministry team here at the church and uh, I get to speak today and continue a winter preaching series that I began in June, uh, on the June, or in early June, uh, which I've simply called Word Up. My encouragement to you over the winter season uh, is to be a people who are strong in the truth of the Scriptures. We take the Scriptures seriously, and, uh, but what we do need to know is how to read the Bible and to how to handle it well. So I'm up to basically part five of this series. I'm going to cut it off on Father's Day as we start something new for the spring series. So this is part five today, and uh, I've simply today I want to start looking at how to interpret the Bible. How to interpret the Bible. We've looked at how to read the Bible. We've looked at how to choose a Bible. Why are there so many different versions? Well, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And we've also looked at how to handle the Scriptures, that God has given us uh, certain toolboxes. He's given us various means to handle the Scriptures well. Today, I want to focus on the word interpret, and uh, we're going to have a look at some lessons in and around the subject of biblical interpretation. How many of you think you, you can handle that today? Yeah, switch your brain on. I think, I think you're going to be just fine. I'm going to start with a story, though, um, that some Somebody some time ago placed in a classified advertisement in the personals pages of the Atlanta Journal. I guess this is in Atlanta, Georgia, in the personal pages. And it said this, single black female seeks male companionship. Ethnicity unimportant. I'm a very good looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck. I love hunting, I love camping and fishing trips. I love cosy winter nights lying with you by the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. Rub me the right way and watch me respond. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work wearing only what nature gave me. Kiss me and I'm all yours. It says... Call 404-875-6420 and simply ask for Daisy. Well, apparently, as the story goes, over 15,000 keen men <laughs> run that uh, phone number that week only to find themselves talking to the Atlanta Humane Society about an eight-week-old black Labrador retriever <laughs> seeking companionship from a male audience. <laughs> there is a reason for that story, and I will come back to that in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to revisit a story in the book of uh, Nehemiah. Uh, the key character in this story is a guy called Ezra. Uh, for those of you who know a little bit about the Old Testament part of your Bible, or what some of us call the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually originally one book. Okay? In fact, in older Bibles, they're simply called 1 and 2 Ezra. And then somewhere through history, I think when the Geneva Bible was put together, um, but, uh, they, they thought they'd split them in half and name one Nehemiah. Okay, So we're going to be reading from the book of Nehemiah, even though the main character here is Ezra. And it's basically at a time in history where God's people had restored uh, the temple in Jerusalem. This is what we call the second temple uh, period. The, uh, Solomon built the first one, then it got destroyed, and these guys rebuilt it. And Ezra and his friends start to read the scripture to the people. 
okay? And this is what we see. I haven't found it yet. Hang on, it's before Psalms. I was giving you time to look it up and I should have, uh, I should have already had it there. And where am I going to read from today? Verse 8, Nehemiah 8, verse 8. It says, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. The priests read from the law of God, made it clear. Now, some translations there say they read from the law of God and translated it. Other translations say translated it. But they translated it because this Bible at this time was written in Hebrew and the people there didn't understand Hebrew because they'd grown up, they'd spent the last 70 to 100 years in Babylon speaking Aramaic. So the scriptures that were written in a different language, these priests who were reading the Bible couldn't just read it, they had to interpret it. So I said last week, the first step in, reading, in handling the Bible well is to read it. Okay? You've got to read it in a translation, in a language that makes sense to you. That's what we see here. They made it clear. The second thing they did was they gave the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to understand it. It's the one thing to know what your partner is saying to you. It's another thing to understand what it is that they are saying to you. And that is part of the challenge of any literature. Yeah, I can read it, but do I understand the meaning of it? And then the third thing we see happen is in verse 9, where Nehemiah, Ezra and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So the people heard the scripture being read, they understood its meaning, and then they responded to that. And they responded by weeping. But Nehemiah said, no, 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 don't do that. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, sugar-free ideally, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Don't grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. These people had the scriptures. They knew what it said. They believed they knew what it meant, but they didn't quite catch how that meaning mattered to them. And so they applied that meaning in a wrong way. They wept and they mourned, and that wasn't the appropriate response. In that instance, the appropriate response was, uh, celebrate. Okay, Somewhere in this process of actually knowing what the Bible says, knowing what it means, the last thing is to know, well, how does that meaning matter to me? So we have a three-step process here when you read the Bible. You've got to know what does it say, what does it mean, and how does that matter? How does that matter to me? These people knew that the scriptures that were being read to them mattered to them. Even though they weren't written directly to them, they were written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, they knew, no, 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 this is God's word and it, has, it matters to us somehow. But they needed a bit of coaching, okay, to know, no, 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 don't form wrong application here, all right? You've got to know the implications for you might be different to the implications of other people who've read it in the past. Okay, you might think the right response is that. No, no, these men then coach them on how to respond properly. And so we see here a three-step process. This is how to handle the Bible well. You've got to know what it says. You've got to know what it means. And then you've got to work out, well, how does that meaning matter to me? Who, who cares if that's what the Bible says? What does that matter to me? The question is not, what does it mean to me? Okay, the question is, what does it mean 
And then how does that fixed meaning matter to you or I today? Another way to put it is this way. The first thing we do when we read the Bible is find the information. What is the information that's being presented to me? Then we go through the process of interpretation so that we can work out the modern day implications. Does that make sense? A lot of people, unfortunately, skip the second process. They read the Bible. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. You need to make sure you're interpreting the Bible properly. This second step, what does it mean, is really important. And in the fancy pants term for this, if you want to get uh, fancy pants on, on me, uh, the word for this in uh, scholarly circles is exegesis. Okay, It's basically working out what does the text actually mean? What has it always meant? And when I know what it means, when I interpret it properly, then I can take the third step and work out what does it matter to me today? All right, does that make sense? That's how to basically, so what, what I want to do today is focus on this second step here. Second step of now I know what the Bible says, how do I work out what it means? Because as I said earlier, it's not, the question is not what does it mean to you? It's not a healthy question. The question is what does it mean? And then how does that matter to me? The illustration I've used before, it's my own so I like it, is, um, is when you use a GPS or like me, you use Google Maps and you're driving somewhere. You put your destination in, it's taking you through South Road and as you read the map, as you're looking at the map, it suddenly tells you that South Road between the end of the expressway and Dawes Road is red near Flinders Hospital, okay? It's red. What is the information you're being given? South Road is red. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean someone's painted it red? Does it mean that it's hot? Does it mean that it's in love? Well, that's what red means to me. Red means in love. Does it mean that only red cars are allowed to drive it? Is that what it means? After all, it says the road is red. What does that mean? Well, the answer to that question is only found when you ask the author. What did the author mean when they made the road red? And they meant, when you understand that program, they meant that it's busy traffic, okay? And now what you know, now that you know what they mean, you can then go to the third step, which is, well, how does that matter to me? What am I going to do about it? If I know that there's busy traffic at that part, what am I going to do? Am I going to go down Marion Road? Am I going to take a diversion? Am I going to phone someone and say, look, I'm going to be 20 minutes late today? Am I going to just sit in the traffic and enjoy the... I then get to make a decision based on what it means. But this meaning is not up to me to decide what the meaning is. My job is to discover what the author meant. Does that make sense? The road is red. What does it mean? Traffic is busy. What does it matter to me? Well, that's where I have some creativity to make a decision. I decide what I, how I apply that set truth. So when you read a letter and it says, I'll be waiting for you in nothing but what nature gave me, or candlelit dinners will be having me eating out of your hand. Okay, what that, the images that that conjures up, when you know what the, who the author is, 
suddenly you understand the meaning. When you understand, that's a black Labrador, okay? It suddenly helps you. Now I know who the author of that letter is. I can understand what it means. I'm interpreting it properly. And so when it comes to interpretation, I like to talk about the ABCs of biblical interpretation. The ABCs of biblical interpretation. And the first one is the letter A, the D, which simply means this. You've got to work out who the author is and who the audience is. When you read something in the Scripture and you want to know, I know that's what it says, but what does it mean? The first thing you ask is, well, ABC, who is the author and what is the, who is the audience that they are writing to? Because listen to me, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us. The whole Bible is being given and written for us. But not everything in here is written to you. It is all written for you. It's all good stuff in there for you to learn from. But it's not all addressed to you. You, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, are not necessarily the target audience for this text. You've got to know when you're reading, does, is this written to a Christian community or is this written to someone else? Because if I don't read it properly and know who the author and the intended audience are, I'm going to come to some wacky applications if I don't truly interpret it properly and know who that is written for. And as a general rule, as a general rule, the closer you are to the intended audience, the, the more similarities you have with them, the more likely it is that your application will match what their application was 2,000, 3,000, whatever years ago. Okay? As a general rule, the further apart you are from this original audience means it is less likely you're going to be able to apply those scriptures in the same way that that original audience was intended to. I've confused some of you already, haven't I? Let me give some simple illustrations. In that last part of the Bible, we have what we call the New Testament. There's a whole bunch of letters written to Christian churches. Okay, Paul is responsible for most of them. The fancy word for it is the word epistles. We know they're written to Christians because that's what they basically all say in chapter 1, verse 1. All right, These are written to Christian communities. And so one of the many instructions that are given to those Christian communities are what we call the one another scriptures. There's about 47 instructions or commands, if you, if you don't mind that word, given to these Christian communities. And they include things like this. In Romans, Paul says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. To the Corinthians, he says, wait for one another before having communion. In Galatians, he says, serve one another in love. To the Ephesians, he says, be kind to one another. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. To the Colossians, he says, don't lie to each other. To the Thessalonians, he says, always seek the good of one another. Hebrews says, stir one another on to do good deeds. James says, pray for one another. Peter says, be hospitable to one another. First John says, since God loved us, so we ought also to love one another. These are all instructions given to a Christian community. How, can you, how many of you can see it's pretty easy to work out that they're pretty well directly applicable to us today? Okay, okay, it's not that hard to read those verses and go, we're a Christian community, Jesus has forgiven us, God loves us, we relate very closely, so it's very easy for us to go, well, that's what it meant 
It meant 2,000 years ago this. How does that matter to me? Well, the correlation's pretty darn close. It's pretty easy to work out. On the other hand, on the other end of the Bible, you've got everybody's favourite book, Leviticus. Someone asked me this week, how the heck do you finish Leviticus? How do you get through it? Like eating an elephant, isn't it? Just one bite at a time. You just keep going. And the book of Leviticus also contains a lot of instructions. For example, it gives instructions about the correct animals to offer to the priests to atone for sin and guilt so that the priests can slit their throats. It shows you how to hold a lamb's head while it's being slaughtered and where to sprinkle its blood. Leviticus gives us dietary restrictions like shellfish, pig, rabbit and snake. Snake, I understand, but not pig. It talks about mandatory male circumcision. It gives instructions about burning clothing that's been affected by mildew. It gives instructions about avoiding clothing made of mixed material. It gives instructions about how to bathe after sex. It gives instructions about the purchase of foreign slaves. It gives instructions about how to clip one's beard properly. Something I haven't done yet. Obviously. So on and so on and so on. Now, when you read that book, you know straight away from top and tail verses that that book is not written to Christians. It has a very distinct audience that it was written to and it addresses. Now, that doesn't mean that Leviticus is irrelevant to you. It is still God-breathed. It is still Holy Scripture. It is still helpful. It is still there for you. But because you are so far removed from that original audience, you go in reading that letter knowing, I'm not going to jump to quick conclusions here. I'm not going to assume that everything I read is written for me to apply. Hello? Because if you did, none of you, every, every one of us here today would have come slaughtering animals when we came. Okay? The top, how do you know who it's written to? Well, you just read the opening verses. Leviticus 1 verse 1 simply says this, The Lord called to Moses, And spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as an offering an animal, either to flocks or herd. When was this book written? It was given at Mount Sinai three and a half thousand years ago to a community called the Israelites, 13 tribes descended from Abraham there at Mount Sinai. None of you are a part of that community. It wasn't written to you. It was written for you, and I'm glad it's in there because there's a lot of stuff we can learn, but it wasn't written to you. The last verse of Leviticus closes it off by saying this, These are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. It is a book written for that group of people. What's your point, Chad? I know what Leviticus says, but before I go from what it says to what do I do? Oh, I've got to clip my beard this way. I've got to throw out my clothes that have cotton and polyester. No, before I seek to apply, I need to take it through the process of what does it mean? And part of finding out what it means is who was it written to? Who is the author and who is the audience? The prophets are another group of books that many Christians don't enjoy reading. I don't. Because by and large, it's a lot of doom and gloom. 
Those of you who've read through the whole Bible with me on YouTube, I kept saying that over and over. I'm like, it's another doom and gloom week, all right? It's predominantly bad news. But here's some good news. None of the prophecies that you read in the Old Testament Scriptures were written to Australia. None of them were directed to the USA. None of them were directed to communist China. None of them were directed to uh, the you know, Middle East. Oh, well, they were. Uh, sorry, not the modern state. None of them were directed to the UN. These are historical books that were directed to a historical audience at the time. So when you read Moses, who says, I will heap calamities on my people and spend my arrows against them. There will be famine, there will be war, pestilence and deadly plague. You go, well, hang on, who was that written to? It was written to a particular group of people under a particular set of covenant conditions. When Isaiah described the coming day of the Lord as cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, he was not writing to Australia in the 21st century. He was writing to Babylon in the 6th century BC. That day has come and gone. He knew who he was talking to. When John the baptizer warned that the axe is already at the fruit, root of the trees, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. <gasps> John the Baptist was not speaking to Christians that day because Christians did not even exist at that point in history. Don't assume that just because it's after Matthew, it means that it is written for Christians. When Jesus said that a disaster is coming and you need to flee to the hills and you better pray that it doesn't happen on a Saturday or you better pray that you're not pregnant when it happens or you better pray that it doesn't happen in winter. He was not speaking to a 21st century community to find the nearest hill if something goes wrong. Well, who cares if it's in winter? We've all got cars. Who cares if it's a Saturday? He was writing to a particular group of people for whom it was illegal for them to travel a certain distance on a Saturday without raising a lot of eyebrows. He was chatting to a group of people at a particular time in history that could not travel very well at all if it was in the middle of winter. Hello? So don't jump to application too fast. You've got to find out who is the author and who is the original audience. Because when I know the intended audience, then once I establish that, I can then discover, hang on God, how might that historical truth, how might it matter to me today? What kind of implications or applications may there be? Okay? There's just common sense in reading the Bible. Remember, I said when God gives us our spirit to read the Bible, he gives us the saints to help us to understand it, but he also gives us a brain. And we need to read the Bible intelligently. Because not everything Jesus, John the Baptizer, and even other apostles in after Matthew 1, not everything they said was said to Christians. So don't jump to conclusions that just because your Bible has a page that says New Testament, it means that suddenly everything there is spoken to the Christian community. It's not. Oh, that didn't go down well. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to share something that is a bit unconventional, meaning that I would be in a minority in what I'm about to share with you. 
Do you trust me? Because you're intelligent people, so I'm going to submit this, submit this to you. One of the big differences in audiences, and those of you who have heard me teach on the three covenants understand this. One of the big differences in audiences in the Scripture is which covenant community people are a part of. Now, if you don't really understand the word covenant, it's basically a way of saying a relational agreement that God has with a particular group of people. And I've taught on this fairly broadly. What the second part of, of interpreting the Bible well, after A, author and audience, is B, you need to consider the Bible's big picture, the Bible's big picture background, because the Bible has one big story but it's a story that moves on in history. That's why it's really important to have a big picture perspective. And in the scriptures, we have a few very distinct communities. At the beginning of the Bible, we have Abraham and his family who are walking with God. They come to a mountain called Mount Sinai where Moses gives 10 commandments and a new relationship with God is created at Mount Sinai. This relationship with God's people continues for about 1,400 years until Jesus comes and dies on the cross, raises a glass of wine and says now a new relationship is being established and a new covenant community is being formed. Okay, That's why I've said before, I don't believe the best way to understand the Bible is two covenants, Old Testament, New Testament, but rather three. There was a period before Moses... There was a period between Moses and Jesus and then there was a new covenant community that started over here. Isn't that pretty? And Hebrews says that a new testament or a new covenant can only come into effect after there is a shedding of blood. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I know that sounds barbaric. It's a very ancient ceremony that doesn't have a huge deal of, we don't apply that in our world today, but it mattered to the people at, at the time very much so. Abraham, Moses and Jesus, their covenants only became effective after blood was shed. And so Sinai and Calvary were two very pivotal moments in the Scripture. Here at Sinai, in the book of Exodus, and particularly Exodus 32, when Moses comes down the mountain, and there here at Calvary and on, in Acts chapter 2, uh, when God's new covenant community was formed. Let's take a, touchy, let's take a subject like Divine forgiveness. How many of you think forgiveness is important? Let's do a bit of an overall Bible study. If you read the first part of the Bible up to Exodus 32, you are not going to see any mention of God's forgiveness toward people. The word doesn't appear, except for Joseph who forgave his brothers, but that's man-to-man forgiveness. There is no teaching in this part of the Bible about God forgiving his people. Now, Chad, what do you mean when you say forgiveness? Well, I mean the same thing that Jesus, Jesus meant. When God said, and he said, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt. Okay, Jesus said the same in Matthew 18. He says, a man, two guys owed someone money. And the guy went to them and he said, you're in the red, but I'm going to take you up from the red to zero. I've cancelled your debt. He said, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is having a debt where you owe somebody something and they say, you owe me that no more. There is no mention in this part of the Bible about God forgiving his people. None. Now, did Abraham, Isaac and Jacob do some bad stuff? 
Yes, okay. They were pretty, they were not nice. They were not great, noble people, okay. They did a lot of bad stuff. But God did not forgive them of any sin. Why? Why why doesn't it say anything in there about God forgiving them? And the answer is found, well, Paul brings up the answer in the book of Romans when he says this, chapter 5, 13. He says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. So in other words, God wasn't holding people's sin against them in this time. He didn't have a ledger. He didn't have an account. And so if they couldn't go in the red, God couldn't cancel their debt. They had no debt. He wasn't holding a debt against them in the first place in this period of history. It's a bit like, you know, I listen to the radio tomorrow and there's a TV commercial comes on for uh, ANZ Bank. And ANZ said, guess what? This coming Friday is debt-free Friday. You're with ANZ, you come in and we're going to cancel your debts. Debt-free Friday, all right? Awesome. Starts at 9.30, get there. I'm pumped, I'm waiting all week. I go down to ANZ, I'm first through the door. Well, actually, I'm not first through the door, I'm lining up. There's like 400 people at the front of the local ANZ and I'm there, I'm lining up, we're all pumped, we're all excited. I finally get into the teller, okay, and they ask for my membership card. I go, here's my card, ding, wipe it. She brings up my account and she says, Chad, we can't cancel your debt today. What do you mean you can't cancel my debt? I've got an account with you. It's debt-free Friday. You promised to cancel my debt. I said, but Chad, you've got 400 bucks in your account. You're actually in credit. You don't have a loan with us. You're not in debt to us. We can't cancel something that doesn't exist. We can't forgive you of something that we're not holding against you. Oh, well, I wanted to be... Have my debt cancelled today? No, you don't have a debt to begin with. You're not missing out on anything. You've maybe wasted a few hours on the line, okay? <laughs> because you didn't know. You don't have a debt with us. I was debt-free before I ever went in for Debt-Free Friday. So they could not cancel something that did not exist. My theory is, God. there's no mention of God forgiving his people prior to Mount Sinai because as this verse says, he was not holding that against them in the first place. He knew they were doing stuff that was wrong, but he did not hold it against them. Jeff might do something wrong against me, and it's up to me whether I hold that against him or not. If he comes to me later and apologises and he says, Chad, I'm really sorry for, for doing that, would you forgive me? I might actually find myself saying to him, well, I accept your apology, but I can't forgive you, mate, because I never held it against you in the first place. <laughs> That's not me being unforgiving. That's me just realising I never held it against you to begin with. Yeah. That makes sense? Because yeah. that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is cancelling a debt and you can't cancel it if it doesn't exist. Yeah. But then, Moses, we come to the old uh, the hill, Mount Sinai in Exodus. A bit, of a bit of a hill, bit of a hike. <laughs> Put that graphic up again, uh, Pete. We come back to the, uh, Mount Sinai and a whole new relationship with God comes about. Where God says, listen, if you do the wrong thing from here on in, I'm going to punish you for it. I'm going to hold it against you and I'll punish you if you disobey me. And God's people agree to that and they enter into a different relationship. And it is here for the very first time in biblical history that the notion of God forgiving people comes about. And it comes when Moses comes down the hill, the people are worshipping a golden calf 
And in Exodus 32, verse 30 says this. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can do something and make atonement for this sin you've committed. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They made themselves gods of gold. But now, please, Lord, forgive their sin. Please cancel this debt that you're holding against them. Because you told us you're going to do this from now on. Please forgive the sin. If not, then I'll take their place. Blot my name out of your book, but free them instead. I will actually be willing to step in the gap and take the penalty on behalf of these people. God did not accept that offer. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. You're not going to take their place, mate. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And that day it says the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they had done. For goodness sake, for the very first time in their history, God penalises his people for, for, um, together for Israel after Abraham. God punishes his people. Why? Because they sinned and God here held back forgiveness from them. Wow, even though Moses offered to take their place, he said, I'm going to punish them. And from this moment on, as you read through the scripture, Moses is the first one to ask God, please forgive them, please forgive them, please forgive them. David comes along, please forgive me, please forgive me. Solomon stands up when the temple's built and says, please forgive them, please forgive them. Hosea, Isaiah, the prophets come, please forgive them, please forgive them. What do we do? Well, we'll bring animals, we'll sacrifice animals, we'll have sackcloth, we'll have ashes, we'll ask God to please forgive us. Please stop holding the sin against us. Please stop holding these sins against us. You know what? There's also sins that you don't know you're doing. So you need to bring certain sacrifices to that just in case you've done a sin that you don't know. So, you, so, oh God, please forgive me of a sin I don't even know that I've done. This is religion, isn't it? A lot of people still live like this. And this is, this is basically the history of the Old Testament until you get up to Jesus and he comes along one day and he says this. If you don't forgive others, God is not going to forgive you. Forgive me, forgive me. I've got, I want God's forgiveness. I want God's forgiveness. Hang on, you better make sure you completely forgive others or God will withhold forgiveness from you. Now, those words that Jesus said are true. But who was Jesus speaking to? He wasn't speaking to Christians that day because Christians didn't exist yet. You come to the cross and on the cross, Jesus dies. And as he's dying, he says this to the Father. He says, Father, forgive them before they even apologize for it. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Forgive them. They're ignorant. Forgive them before they ever bring an offering. Forgive them before they ever even acknowledge it. Forgive them. Release them. Forgiveness is in Christ. And after this moment, as you read the New Testament, the preachers go out. And they say, forgiveness is found in Jesus. It's not found in animal sacrifices. It's not found in sackcloth and ashes. It's not found for constantly asking, 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 please forgive, please forgive, please forgive, please forgive. No, 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 hang on. Forgiveness is found in Jesus. And so from here on in, on this side of the cross, when Paul writes to people in the new covenant community, he says to them, Christ has forgiven your sin. You see, it is true. When Isaiah spoke to 
God's people in this period, he says, your sins have separated you from God and he's hiding his face from you. But 150 years later, Ezekiel says to them, the time is coming where God will no longer hide his face from you. And that is the day where God will pour out his spirit upon you. What happens after the cross? God pours his spirit out upon his people and says, I will no longer hold my sin, your sins against my people. As far as my heavenly account goes, you will never be in the red with me again. God will not hold sins against people that he has forgiven. We receive that forgiveness because we trust in Jesus. And that is a once for all deal, as the book of Hebrews says. And so you read the epistles and John says this, 1 John 2.12, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Say, have been. Will be? Have been. When was that written? This side of the cross. They have been forgiven. What does Paul say to the Ephesians? In him we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the measure of our constantly crying out and asking for it. We have forgiveness of sins in accordance with the measure of our sacrifices and pleasing God. We have forgiveness of sins in accordance with our measure of making sure we've forgiven everyone else first, then God will forgive us. No, we have forgiveness of sins in according with the measure of his great grace that was demonstrated once for all at the cross. So forgiveness now for those who have received the work of the cross is a past tense reality. We are forgiven. Colossians 2, he writes to the Christians in Colossae and says, You were dead in your sins and the transgression and the uncircumcision of your heart. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave, past tense, us all our sins, having cancelled the written code that was uh, legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken, past tense, it away, nailing it to the cross. Who's he writing to when he says that? Christians. And as a general rule, the closer you are to the community that's being identified, the more confidence you have to go, <gasps> all Scripture is true, but there are different audiences throughout the Bible and I mostly identify with this audience because I'm not under this system here. I am on this side of the cross. This Scripture I apply is applicable to me. Colossians 3 Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord. How did the Lord forgive you? Totally, completely, freely. Father, forgive them. And now on this side of the cross, having received that forgiveness, knowing that I'm forgiven, I now forgive others. On this side of the cross, I better forgive others because if I don't, God's going to withhold forgiveness from me. Jesus said that. But on this side of the cross, forgiveness is now a past tense reality where I forgive not to get God's forgiveness, but I forgive because I am fully forgiven. So the Bible's consistent. We come across verses from time to time that seem to contradict one another don't we? But that's sometimes because there is a different audience 
that is being addressed. We have a Bible that covers three and a half thousand years of history of God's relationship with his people. And while all of it is written for us, not all of it is written to us. And the further away removed you are from the original audience, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter to you, but it means you need to be far more careful in how you seek to apply that historic truth to your life today. I'm not, having, I'm not doing a wild sweep of saying the whole New Testament doesn't apply to us. You'll never hear me say that. Never. What I'm saying is be aware of the original audience. Then you need to think about it. You need to reason about it. You need to stand back and have a big picture view of the Bible and say, I know that's what God said then and there. That's what he said then and there to them. But how does that matter to me today? How much do I identify with them? And therefore, how much can that truth, may that truth apply to me? Otherwise, if you skip this second step of asking, I know what it says, therefore, this is what I'll do. No, no, no. I know what it says, but what does it mean? I need to take the information. I need to go through interpretation before I discover the modern day implications for me. And while that might sound a bit of a daunting task, it actually gets a lot easier the more familiar you get with the Bible. The more familiar you get with the authors and audience and the background and the context, 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 the more familiar you get, the easier it becomes to you to go, yeah, I'm going to do that today. I know I'm going to apply that in my life. Because all Scripture is written for you, but it may not all necessarily be written to you. And that's not even a controversial thing to say. Because you know that. That's why there's a lot of stuff in here that a lot of you aren't applying. Because you know that's actually not for me. Are you thinking? Hey? Are you thinking? Have I got you a bit curious? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it matter? Paul writes this to the Corinthians. How about we finish here? Two Corinthians five. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we all died to our old life. He died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.